Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to Bumps Along the Way, a weekly podcast hosted by me, Anna Christie, that explores unique and bumpy roads to pregnancy and parenthood. Speaking of bumpy roads, ever since we started struggling to conceive, I've had the feeling something's not right. Maybe it's all the yoga keeping me in touch with my body. Maybe it's all the journaling and self-reflection. Maybe it's just gut instinct. But no matter what it was, we finally got the answers we've been searching for after a visit to a fertility clinic in Belgium. With any diagnosis, it can be a lot to process. So I chatted with my long-term friend and fertility midwife, Tor Shivers, about our recent tests, procedures, and results. Together, Tor and I unpacked the blood tests, MRI, and hysteroscopy procedures that brought us to the diagnosis that helps explain the reason I have struggled to fall and stay pregnant. Also, my husband learns his sperm quality has been low. Another important reminder that when it comes to fertility, it really is 50-50. The bumps in the road are not yet over for us. Our treatment begins and that will bring its own set of challenges. But we feel eternally grateful to have answers, knowing that so many people out there are still searching for theirs. If this is you, I'm sending so much love and I really urge you to keep pushing your healthcare providers to look deeper. So now let's hear the latest update in our bumpy road. Hi Tor, how are you going? I'm good, thanks Anna, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good, yeah, like going with the ups and downs of it all. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I met you, Tor, when we were back at university. Um, We didn't know each other too well, but all of a sudden we became housemates and Yeah, I think during that time, I remember really clearly you started working or maybe already were working as a nurse. And Mm. that to me was the start of your career. But where does it all start for you? I think probably around about that time as well. So before that, I was doing design and was sort of convinced I was going to be a fashion designer, which obviously hasn't happened. I've taken a completely different career path. Um, So when we were living together, I think I was potentially maybe just finishing studying. So I started off as a nurse 
um, working in Sydney. Um, I worked in a few different areas, but then I sort of specialised in intensive care and then I moved into midwifery, which has sort of got me to where I am now. Okay, so you went from design to to science and medicine Mm -hmm. and that must have also been a really big learning curve. Yeah, I mean, I think nursing is sort of a massive learning curve. You, But at the same time, it's, you know, it's sort of bit by bit and you're always hands-on in the hospital doing lots of placements. Um, so, yeah, no, it was it was kind of a massive change, but it wasn't too challenging in a sense. It felt very natural. It was all, you know, a lot of it's really just being able to talk to people. But you, so you were specialising in intensive care and then yeah. at what point did you decide to actually pivot more into women's health and do you say midwifery, midwifery? Good question. So many people ask me that. I say midwifery. So when I was studying, I did an elective in um, women and children, and it was really interesting. I absolutely loved it, and I always knew I would get into that at some point. I sort of got into intensive care and was, like, going down a pathway where I could have stayed there and done postgraduate, um, you know, courses and become quite specialised in that area, but I knew it wasn't really my end goal. I think to be an intensive care nurse, you've got to be – you know, you've got to really love it because it is such an intense, go figure, environment that, you you know, you really do need to love what you're doing to be there. And I, I liked it, but I certainly didn't love it. Okay. <laughs> so it was the, the combined... Total disclosure there. <laughs> it was a combination of, okay, what is my passion and also what, what are my strengths? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to work with my strengths. That's why I probably kept pivoting and, and, and where I am now, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. So talk me through a bit about what a fertility midwife actually does. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of funny. It's a role that I sort of just created by default where I work. So essentially I'm a nurse and a midwife. So I was doing midwifery in Sydney. Um, I worked as a midwife for three years. I absolutely adored it. When I moved to London, I fell into it sort of by default. I never thought I'd do fertility. Um, however, was looking for a job where I wasn't going to be doing night shifts and um, had a slightly more regular routine. So I fell into um, fertility and then I obviously had to be either registered as a nurse or a midwife. So I registered as a midwife because it was my most recent area of work um, and that meant that I was a fertility midwife. So really I do the same thing as a fertility nurse but it is quite helpful having all the knowledge of early pregnancy um, because that can be so helpful for the women that are coming through for treatment. Okay. Where um, where are you up to? Yes, good question. Um, basically, in the Netherlands, as you know, we spoke about this a few weeks, well, actually a few months ago now. Um, it can be a little bit testing to get investigation done when it comes to fertility. And some very good friends of ours suggested this one clinic in Belgium. And I don't know the specifics of it all, but basically in Belgium, it seems like there are less wait lists. You can get a deeper level of investigation done a lot faster and therefore get a lot more answers a lot quicker. So we registered in this clinic, well, back in April, actually, had the initial consultation in May and then started having all of our tests and stuff over the last few weeks, which... So I was just wondering, with the, when you say you had to go to Belgium, is that because in Amsterdam, is there literally a shortage of private fertility clinics or is it that they will only see you after a certain point of trying to conceive? I think it's both. So because we did four pregnant successfully in January, 
look, this, I don't think this is only in the Netherlands, but they do typically tell you to try again for another year. And for us, that just felt really long. Um, but I do, I mean, I don't necessarily know, but I have the feeling maybe it's there's also a resource, resource shortage as well. It's interesting how, you know, there's just so many barriers to so much healthcare and the fact that there is such a barrier for you that you have to travel to a different country yeah. just to get some answers is absolutely wild. I know, I know, and I don't. And this whole journey isn't hard enough to navigate on its own. You just have that as a, as an extra little thrown-in thing there. I know, but the best thing we've ever done because what basically happened was we did the consultation. She asked us a whole set of questions, which I think are pretty standard. Um, and based off of that conversation, she ordered like another semen analysis for for like my husband Vouts. Um, and that was to be done in Belgium specifically. And I'll tell you why later. And for me, blood test, mm-hmm. MRI and a hysteroscopy. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. Firstly, just on the note of you saying amazing, cause I got my results. Good on you for finding a silver lining because you, with everything that's going on, regardless of who you are or what you're doing, you really do have to try and kind of find those small positives. Otherwise, it can get you down really quickly. And inevitably, you know, you will go through those motions and you have to process that at the time. But, um, yeah, good on you for finding that positive there. Um, and I'm glad that you've managed to kind of get into a good clinic and get all those tests done. So mm. with interesting, so why, why did that have to do another semen analysis? Yeah, so basically he did one in the Netherlands and they, well, they look at two things or three things, right? Um, they, I think it just depends on the lab, but there's certainly like a whole range of, of different parameters that they look at. So some, I know that, you know, where I work, there's a whole sheet of various things, but yes, there are three main parameters. I think I know the ones you're talking of. Yeah, so they basically looked here, when he did it in the Netherlands, they looked at um, volume and I guess it's speed. Like, are they moving? Are they swimming? The motility and potentially morphology. So are they I think moving? so. Are they moving? Yes. So they looked at those two things. They were both fired. So they said, okay, you're, you know, you're in the clear. You're good. When we went to Belgium, they looked at a third factor, which is quality. And, you know, the quantity versus quality argument feels pretty important. But because the volume and the movement were fine in the Netherlands they didn't look at the quality and in Belgium when we went to the quality side the quality was low for him and there's a whole range of factors why that could be which we learned one of which is um they're learning more and more the impacts that having COVID can have on quality and he had had COVID in April of this year okay isn't that interesting how we're still kind of learning the different effects of what COVID potentially vaccines, who knows, has had on yeah. our bodies, potentially on our fertility. It's still such an unknown area. Um, yeah. It doesn't make it particularly easy when you're sort of going, oh, my gosh, was it this, was it that, um, and look at all these things. Interestingly, on the semen analysis, it's always good for wherever you have your treatment to have a semen analysis there because if you are having treatment in a certain clinic, it's always handy for them to use their own parameters because then they can kind of action all the appropriate plans and see things against their own levels because each lab, as you have experience, will do things slightly differently. But, yeah, the quality 
piece surprised both of us because we are pretty healthy. So it felt like maybe COVID could have been the contributing factor with yeah, with, with a pretty young, healthy guy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they've given him some sort of supplement and also melatonin. Interesting. I haven't <laughs> heard of that before. So what's the purpose of the melatonin? I think it could help sperm quality. That's what. Fascinating. <laughs> I have never heard of that, but that's incredible. I mean, this is the incredible thing about fertility as well. There is so um, there's so many differing approaches out there, and there's so many different things that you can do. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. Is just normalizing the fact that mm-hmm. this can be a challenging process for some people. And yeah, absolutely. It, so, when it comes to the blood test results. Yeah. There's a lot there's a lot in here honestly there's like three or four pages I think of things that they looked for when you're talking bloods what are the most common things that people like could be requesting from their doctors if they're going into fertility and blood testing Yeah absolutely so look I think when you're coming in to do fertility treatment as we've spoken about you know you can still even if you're really healthy it is important to kind of optimize everything in your body so often we check vitamin D. Now, this is something that I never really paid attention to living in Australia. We always had, you know, very fortunately, a lot of sun majority of the year. I never needed to sun. Yeah. But when you move to countries like the UK and the Netherlands, it, a lot of people do become quite deficient in vitamin D over the winter months. Vitamin D is really important for egg and sperm quality. And ideally, you know, I think the normal reference range, you'd want to be above 50. However, for for fertility treatment, being above 100 is a really good idea. So um, checking the vitamin D is really handy and potentially supplementing if you need to. There's also, we look at thyroid function. So a thyroid function is really important for early pregnancy. You really need the thyroid to be within normal range. Um, we also do a full, uh, a full blood count. So that's just kind of getting a, a baseline on what's going on in the body. If there's anything, it often flags if there's other things going on that require further investigation, you know, like a low hemoglobin could indicate, um, you know, a low iron, low iron levels and that sort of thing. Um, so they would be the three main ones in terms of optimizing the body, but also of course an AMH. But yes, it's, I, I think that before you have that done, it's really important that people understand what it is and the implications of testing it because it can, for some people open up quite a can of worms. Yeah, so that's a good question. What actually is AMH? So AMH is a funny thing. Um, an anti-malaria hormone, you know, is a simple blood test that's done and it is one of the tools in which they can sort of look at where your fertility is at. So it essentially looks at your ovarian reserve. But it also should be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt. You can't say somebody has like low fertility or no fertility if they have a low AMH. There's so many things that you should be looking at in conjunction with an AMH. So it shouldn't be looked at in isolation. Um, It also doesn't determine quality of your eggs. Okay, so we don't just look at the reserves in isolation. We don't just look at the AMH results in isolation. We look at it in combination with a whole bunch of different factors. Yeah, it's basically a hormone that looks at your ovarian reserve. So it basically looks, It's it, people kind of call it as like, how many eggs do you have left? Now, it certainly doesn't indicate how many eggs you have left, but it looks at, you know, potentially a low AMH might indicate why people are struggling to fall pregnant. It could, could be um, if it's very, very low. Um, before doing fertility treatment, we always check it because it helps us determine 
what treatment protocol will be best suited to people. Now, some people who have a really high AMH, it might indicate something like polycystic ovaries where they're not regularly ovulating. I think often people think, oh, if I've got a high AMH, it means I've got loads of eggs and that's fantastic. But whilst you know you don't want it to be really low, you also don't want it to be too high because when you have too high, it doesn't, obvious, it doesn't always equal good quality eggs. So I think the main thing to mention with AMH is that irrespective of your level, it it certainly doesn't mean, you know, unless it's like zero, but it certainly doesn't mean that you cannot fall pregnant if it's low or, you you know, you're going to struggle to have a baby. It's because obviously with eggs, it, as we talked about before, it's all about the quality of them. Okay. So I have two questions. Yep. In terms of the number, mm-hmm. what is deemed high, what is deemed good, what is deemed low? Yeah. It's, this is such a tricky one to navigate and it's so hard to give people accurate information. So I think when we get blood results, the reference range, I mean, they're crazy. They're like, obviously they're broken down depending on your age, but the reference range is like, you know, might be like three to 50. So if you're okay. somewhere in like the twenties or the teens, it essentially gives you no indication of where you are. So that's why whilst it is handy to know, it shouldn't be looked at in isolation. I think somewhere in, you know, in the teen for, well, we've got to think about age brackets here. So for our age, um, 31, 32, around about that age, I think being somewhere in your sort of teens and and 20s is quite a good number. Like that would Mm -hmm. be a good number, but certainly, you know, even if you were, you know, around about the 10 mark, that's fine because once again, the focus is really on quality. And now other people might completely disagree with what I've just said you know, that work in the industry, it is, it's a really difficult one to navigate. If everything's going well and people are healthy and well ovulating regularly, then the number doesn't, you know, isn't really that relevant. It's just mm. a matter of ensuring that you are kind of regularly ovulating and you have a good quality egg there to be fertilized. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay. My second question was, is there anything you can do to improve it? Not really. Um, AMH is generally speaking, stay the same. I mean, unfortunately as women, they do decline with age. Um, I have seen small fluctuations. So some people have, you know, I've seen some women do acupuncture and have a healthy lifestyle and they have kind of gone up a little bit, but, Mm -hmm. um, so you'd want to give your body, you know, a couple of months and then check it again. Okay. All right. Makes sense. The blood test results like for me, very thankfully, they all came back pretty good, actually. The AMH was the only thing that when I saw it, I thought, oh, yeah, feels a bit low. The guidance to me was that it was good, like that it was okay and nothing to be concerned about, mm-hmm. um, although she has circled it. So <laughs> I wonder if there was a bit of um, giving me a little bit of confidence <laughs> to not stress about it. I mean, you're young, so you you have technically good quality eggs, um, you know, if we're looking at it from like an age perspective. Unfortunately, you know, the tough thing about being women is that, you know, age isn't on our side when it comes to fertility and that sounds really awful, but it is kind of the truth. So, you know, it is all statistics and, you know, how outdated they are, I'm not really too sure, but essentially, you know, when we get to 35, there can, there is a slight decline in the quality of our eggs. So then it kind of just goes exponentially um, you know, it increases in terms of the rate of chromosomal abnormalities. 
the older we get. So the closer you are to 40, unfortunately, the quality mm. does decrease. Now that doesn't say that every single egg is going to be rubbish. That's not right at all. But, you know, it's just something to keep in mind. So at your age, you're absolutely fine. Okay. Good to know. But it always is, I think, on people's minds, especially if you want yeah. maybe more than one child, you do start thinking about the ticking time clock or however you say it. I mean, um, the whole the whole area is so anxiety induced because and I know, you know, we've spoken about this, you know, outside of this podcast so many times that, you know, as women we spend our whole lives trying not to fall pregnant and it's drilled into us from high school, you know, this is what you need to do to avoid it. And, you know, everyone always always talking about the various methods of contraception. And then it's, you, you never really talk about fertility and we never really talk about well, what happens when you're trying to conceive. So all of a sudden, one day, maybe when you're in a position where you decide that you're ready for a baby, you sort of say, okay, cool, let's stop all the contraception, let's give this a go. And I think people then can be quite shocked and taken off guard when it takes a bit of time. I mean, this is this is definitely can be very, very normal, but um, it's such a shame and it's such a hard thing to navigate emotionally when we're not really prepped for that. Yes, yes, 100%. It's almost like the only thoughts that I ever gave fertility or my cycle or anything was my focus was going the wrong way. It was preventing pregnancy. It was managing my period. It was, I was never, ever, ever thinking about ovulation or the fertile window or anything like that until the moment where you start trying. And it feels like the moment you start trying is also the moment you start learning. I don't remember going through any education like this at school? No, it's not done. No, it's not done. It's a shame. I mean, it just needs to be a balance of both, I think. Um, Yeah, we just need to, I think just women, just generally speaking, probably need to understand their bodies a bit more. It should be taught more in high schools or, you know, I don't know, just spoken about probably a bit more openly. 100%. Okay, the second thing that I had to do was the MRI. And, yeah, for... Anybody that has not had an MRI before, <laughs> I found this really difficult. Um, I could be like quite prone to claustrophobia or just, I don't know, I guess it was just for me quite like anxiety inducing in the sense that you're strapped down on this bed, you are holding a panic button and I was like, why do I have a, a panic button in my hand? <laughs> like, what's going to happen now? Yeah. Slide into this tubular giant x-ray machine. Um, and I was told, okay, don't move because if you move, we lose all the photos and we have to start again. And I said, okay, no problem. Like, how long is this going to take? And she said, half an hour. And I was like, and I'm in this tube for half an hour and it's covering your head. And I don't know, I just found it really horrible. Um, but the MRI was looking at the shape and I guess form of my uterus. Um, also yeah. just another thing on the, on the note of the, you know, having the MRI, if people haven't had one before, I think the other thing to mention is how loud they are. I mean, it's like yeah. someone's got pots and pans and they're like bashing them together right next to your ears and they give you little, you know, headphones, I think to block out the noise. I had one a long time ago. And I think they were trying to play music through the headphones. They were like, I don't know, connected to the radio or whatever. And, um, I mean, I literally couldn't hear any music. It was so incredibly loud. Um, so that for half an hour or more, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was pretty extreme. 
Yeah, honestly, um, I felt like I was being buried alive and they were trying to like dig me out and I could hear the bang, bang of the, like that sort of sound, you know, that mechanical metallic noise. And when you're going into a procedure like this and you're already feeling, you know, a little bit anxious because you're trying to find out answers and figure out what's going on with your body, you sort of already go in with a fairly high baseline of anxiety combine it with that <laughs> and it's yeah it's a lot to go through mm-hmm. but yeah we don't we don't do that frequently at work at all okay all right so they were doing the mri yeah what did it show for you did were there any results that came up that were flagged or was everything normal yeah they were doing it in combination with the hysteroscopy mm-hmm. hysteroscopy um like a tiny camera that goes up so the hysteroscopy is something i'm very familiar with we do that yeah. every single day multiple times a day Okay. Yes. <laughs> so that I can talk about. So, um, so the idea is you go in with a camera. It's a brief procedure, often done under sedation. When you go through into the vagina through the cervix, you can look inside the uterus. You can look at the shape. You can measure the length. The reason we measure the length is then we know exactly where to reimplant an embryo back. We also look at the uterus to see if there's any unusual features going on. So sometimes um, women have small polyps that you can't pick up on scan. So if there are any small polyps, we will remove those. The idea is that if you do an embryo transfer and there's a polyp, polyps don't have blood supply, so then the embryo transfer won't work. So we don't want to leave anything up to chance. It's a way of ensuring, you know, whilst you can have a good quality embryo, we want to ensure that the environment is, you know, as perfect as we can get it. Mm-hmm. So that's the other benefit of a hysteroscopy when we're doing it is that the a sort of byproduct of doing the procedure is that you do a bit of like an endometrial scratch at the same time. Now the endometrial scratch, the evidence still is kind of a little bit iffy of it, but the early stages does suggest that doing a slight endometrial scratch can help aid implantation because it almost creates like a Velcro effect on the uterine lining. Okay. Um, Why we do it in fertility treatment. So I suppose for you, it was slightly more diagnostic. Um, You weren't obviously going through a fertility cycle, like a a stimulated cycle or IVF or anything like that, but you were looking to see if there's anything else that was going on. Is that Yeah. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So I was not under sedation, unfortunately. Um, Under sedation? No, but I was wide awake um, for that. However, if you haven't had babies before as well your cervix generally you know hasn't done a whole lot of dilating <laughs> i suppose so it can actually be very very sore even just like getting the camera through your cervix yeah i didn't i didn't love it i didn't like it at all um but maybe they didn't do the scratching because i maybe that's why i was not asleep would that scratching be relatively painful or uncomfortable yeah, it would be a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and I certainly, I've heard of many places not putting women to sleep for it. So I don't, it's certainly not like 100% necessary. Maybe if they're just kind of briefly looking at the camera. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I think it was a brief check. I think for me, unfortunately, like having that condition of vaginismus, anything coming towards me um, is challenging. And like that's a condition that leads to a lot of kind of involuntary clenching and it's difficult to relax. And so having that tiny camera, although it was brief, it just, yeah, I honestly felt like I was going to throw up. I was sweating. It was horrible. That's awful. Yeah, that's really, really awful. But with having vaginismus, are you okay with ultrasound scans, internal scans? 
yes and no. Like I'll be very anxious going in. I'll be very anxious sitting down. I'll be very anxious all the way up until it started. The weird thing about the ultrasound is that like it's quite a like smooth round shape or something. You know what I mean? Like the tip of it. And for me, it's okay. More like any other type of examination though, where they use um, speculum. Yeah, no, no, not for me. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not my favorite thing to do. Um, The good thing is my understanding is that from the hysteroscopy, like absolutely everything was fine. However, with the ultrasound and the MRI, they did find what's called an abnormal um, dysmorphic uterus. Interesting. Yeah. And the uterus that I have is like T-shaped. It's got a very narrow cavity and they're um, hypothesizing that that's the reason that um, it's been difficult to have implantation and it's potentially a reason for early miscarriage back in January. Okay. So basically what they're going to do is they're going to operate on my uterus in August. Um, Yeah, we were kind of hoping that they would say, like, come in next week. (laughs) And August felt a little bit far away, but definitely not complaining because it'll come by in a heartbeat. Um, Yeah, I will go under sedation. They're going up with little micro scissors and they're going to make incisions along the side of my uterus where the T-shape becomes really narrow and the goal is to get it back to the regular shape that it should be so that a healthy embryo can implant and grow. Um, And, yeah, that surgery is in August. I feel pretty good about it because from what I've read and also, you know, I'm – pretty lucky that actually my father-in-law and my brother-in-law are both in medicine and they've read all of the research papers that I was provided with and confirmed that it's low risk, you know, low risk of complications and really effective with a high success rate. So I'm pretty like okay about this. Having this surgery to fix this condition is a really positive next step. The one thing that um I do feel anxious about that I wanted your opinion on is this hormone injection. Um, It's called Decapeptil. It's 3.75 milligrams. And my understanding is that it puts me into a state of menopause. And obviously when I heard that, I was like, that sounds really intense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You just think menopause. You're like, why would I want to do that? Yeah. um, Decapeptil I'm familiar with. We use it quite a lot um, in the clinic. So essentially what it does is it shuts down your hormones. So interesting, I have never heard, you know, about the procedure that you're having. So it's definitely, you know, learning for me. But I imagine the reason why you're having this medication is, as we, as I just said, to sort of shut down your hormones. So I suppose when you, it, what it, it sort of quietens everything. So, you know, your hormones obviously, you know, fall and, and raise at different points in your cycle. So the idea is that they want to get everything really nice and low because it will allow them to go in and do that procedure at a certain stage of your cycle, which they'll be able to control. Mm. Mm, yeah, I can 
kind of get an understanding as well that it's to do with visibility when they go in. Mm. Um, obviously, with our cycle as well, like the lining gets thicker yep. before our period, right? So, and then that yeah. flushes away. Before so they obviously. And then you obviously the lining sheds as you get your period. So, yeah. yeah. They're trying to get me at a state where I have no lining and then they can plan the surgery at any time, I guess, as well. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, interesting. Look, I think I can completely understand the concern about it because you, you hear those words, you know, puts you in a sort of perimenopausal state. Uh, from my experience, we do give that medication a lot and it certainly can um, delay people's cycles and it, it can sort of shift around your hormones. But being quite young, I think you'd be absolutely fine. It will just take a little bit of time for your body to get into a natural rhythm after that. But mm-hmm. essentially your body's hormones will override that. It it stays in your system for about sort of four or five weeks and then it will be completely gone and your hormones will take over again. So okay. um, I completely understand the concern. But Four or five weeks though is um, like the surgery that I have is in August six which is six and a half weeks away okay maybe i had a slightly higher dose though yes you did sorry we give three yeah 3.75 so yeah it is a slightly different dose and was it an intramuscular injection yes and i can't hardly walk right now (laughs) yeah yeah i was about to say because that's you know that's another thing it's just like all the injections, all the medications, all that kind of stuff, like it all takes a bit of a toll. The intramuscular injections are particularly nasty. I think um, we have people on them, not decapeptal, but a you know other types of medications daily. And, mm. yeah, they do get really sore. They're done in like the top sort of um, outer segment of your bum cheek. Correct. So make walking and sitting quite sore. Correct. Yes. So I've just been taking like very regular paracetamol and resting a lot. Um, but that was actually this morning. I don't know if you told you that. Oh, amazing. <laughs> so you had it this morning. Literally had it this morning. Yeah. So let's see if I become a was menopausal. <laughs> was Val able to do that for you? No, we got the doctor to do it. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. It was like our first experience with need- needles and injecting each other and I don't know, I, j- I just felt like I was in more safe hands and it was kind of complicated. So I'm pretty happy that she did it. Yeah. yeah the yeah. setup of the needle itself was was quite complicated. Um, yeah. Just a little bit and... of mixing medication that goes on. Um, no, I yeah. think if it's a one-off injection then there's no point you kind of trying to do it. It's always nice if a healthcare provider can do it for you. Yes, indeed. I'm so sorry to hear that. It must have been quite a shock when you got that sort of diagnosis. I imagine conflicting feelings, a shock and weirdly a relief because you yeah. said answer. Yeah. 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 Like initially I was kind of like, oh, this is it. Finally, this is it, you know. Get on yeah. With it. Yeah. yeah. I was really positive. We left the clinic. We both had next steps. But my initial wave was like, oh, this is it. Like we could, we've got this, you know, let's have, you know, my mind went to kind of, we got married and we had this huge high mm. and then we went straight into this trying kind of nightmare, <laughs> like with the yeah. monthly, monthly ups and downs and all the hope and then the heartbreak and then the huge high of falling pregnant and then the huge low of miscarriage and then having oh. another half year of yeah. nothing. I said to that, like, 
let's just treat this as kind of our second honeymoon. Like there's nothing we can do now. They told us to, to not try because, well, if I do fall pregnant and miscarry again, it sets us back even further. Yeah. Finding out there is a reason, mm. you know, like I've, I felt quite lucky and quite grateful because you also know there are a lot of people that don't get answers, unfortunately. Yeah. I think they call it unexplained infertility, which I think is such a torturous diagnosis because you're like, great, what yeah. do I do with this? Like multiple rounds of IVF? Like what does that mean? Exactly. And for us it's, you know, we're forced off the hamster wheel right now. There's nothing we can do. And so my initial reaction was like this is a really good thing. But then, of course, you go into like processing of, oh, wow, there, there was something. And – I have something mm. and now, and then you have to process all of that. And then I had, I realized, is that the reason I had a miscarriage? And, and then I started feeling quite a lot of guilt again. And that brought back a lot of. What was the guilt around? Well, when you have a really early miscarriage, they often say it's probably a chromosomal abnormality, right? And there is maybe a bit of comfort in that, that you think, okay, maybe my body did the right thing by not holding on to but when I learned about this and there's actually something wrong with my body in the sense that maybe it was a healthy embryo, but it didn't have a chance. And that's where I felt. That's so like, heartbreaking to hear because it's not, it's not your fault. This is just the human body and it, you know, it is weird and wonderful all at the same time, but that is certainly not your fault. I can understand that feeling. And I think it's important that you feel it and kind of just go through all those motions, but it's all very complicated. No, I know. Like we'll never really know, but that was, I think, part of, yeah, what came up for me. And then you kind of have to process that again Yeah, in a smaller way. I didn't relive the entire miscarriage, but some of those emotions around the grief came up again, like the, I guess, guilt or shock or shame or whatever it was. Um and then now I'm just, I am again relieved to have a plan. It's been a full yeah. circle. <laughs> yeah, I know. A roller coaster, literally up and down. Look, I think the nice thing about, about the stage that you're in is that you, you have your answers, you have a plan in place, but also a really nice opportunity to actually like take a bit of a step back because whilst we've talked so much about, you know, maintaining a healthy lifestyle and reducing alcohol, reducing caffeine and, you know, all this kind of stuff, I also think that that can be quite torturous in a way not just because i love a wine but more so because we love a wine we love a wine who doesn't <laughs> love a wine? but more so because it's like you're putting all this pressure on yourself to be like optimizing your health and then there's like guilt associated with having processed foods if you have like a chocolate bar and you feel guilty or you're trying to reduce gluten and dairy and all these sorts of things i sometimes feel like whilst it is important to be healthy putting so much pressure on yourself you know in that way can lead to so much more stress and obviously you want to reduce stress. So, you know, I, I talk about this a lot with patients at work because what I find is there's, you know, sometimes women come in to start treatment with us and we as a clinic do, you know, like baseline hormones when they come in to start a treatment cycle. Now, if their hormones aren't within perfect range, we don't start treatment. We actually say, look, this month your hormones don't look like they're at a good starting point. Let's wait another month, wait till we can get them in the best possible range because we're going to get a better cycle out of it. What I found is I was speaking to a woman the other day and she, I think, had had multiple failed 
attempts at starting because her hormones were quite all over the shop. There were certain levels that were quite high, which meant it wouldn't have been the best treatment cycle for her. I think she thought, God, I'm over this. I need to go for a break. So she went on holiday, had a great time, I think just let her hair down a bit, which meant, you know, having the odd wine or whatever it was. Um, And then she came back and her hormones were perfect. So I think stress has a huge, plays a huge role in our bodies, Um, you know, probably increases inflammation and wreaks havoc with our hormones. So it is really important to try and manage stress as well and um yeah. to reduce as much as you can your lifestyle and i've gone on a total tangent but in terms of what the stage that you're up to is that you know it's a nice opportunity for you guys just to kind of you know know that everything is kind of heading in the right direction you've got your plan in place so you can sort of just focus back on you and i don't know just yeah yeah enjoying the summer i guess and like not putting so much pressure on it because it is exhausting yeah oh 100 percent oh I'm actually so happy that you didn't end that story with, and then she came back from holiday and she was pregnant because <laughs> I was oh. like, <laughs> people people always tell you, like, just relax, go on holiday, and you're, sometimes you're like, that's not it. <laughs> yeah, like, like, that's a really nice idea. I love holidays, but, like, I wish it was that simple. Um, <laughs> and, you know, fantastic if that does work for some people. Some people go in and have a fertility consultation and then just, I think, that, like, yeah. that mental load off, they then naturally fall pregnant. But, mm-hmm. You know, this is only some people. Some people need to then obviously go through the process or they need further investigations or something comes up like yourself that needs to be mm-hmm. treated. So, yeah. yeah, there's so many different avenues that people go down and so many different outcomes and, yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. Very tricky to know. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in this no. field, so working as a fertility nurse for or a fertility midwife I am for two years now and I am still learning so much all the time. You know, obviously two years isn't a huge amount of time but mm-hmm. – you know, every day there's new things that I'm constantly challenged by and constantly learning. So I'm navigating all these different processes and how different women respond to treatment. And given how much I'm learning, I sort of think, oh, my gosh, how do people navigate this? Like if I'm still figuring it out, how do women come in and go through this all the time and try and navigate such a difficult system and even just Mm -hmm. getting to the point of picking a fertility clinic or making sure you have the right test done and then, I yeah, I wish you were my fertility midwife. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> I'm your unofficial one, though, so it's okay. True. You're, <laughs> I don't have your like, answers, but I'll try. 24-7 WhatsApp service. <laughs> 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 I will leave you alone now that we're on the I'm right path. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I don't think I have any more questions. I okay. think we talked through everything. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for helping me make sense of it all um, as much as we can. I think I'm learning along this process with you, as I'm sure, you know, so many people are. It's, yeah, it is all a bit of a roller coaster and there's so many things that you learn along the way. Um, but, yeah, definitely always here to kind of help you navigate it as best as I can as well. Um, mm. And I'm very happy that you have answers and a bit of a plan moving forward. 100%. Yeah, thank you. Well, many bumps along the way, you know? Yes. Yeah, exactly right. Very <laughs> absolutely an absolutely named podcast. Yeah. Um, all right, lovely. Thank you so much. I will, yeah, keep you posted, of course. Well, good luck and take care. Thank you. Bye. Right. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.